Well, good morning. It is good to be with you guys. Uh, if you all have never had a chance to meet me, my name is Trey Corey. I'm the college pastor here at our Southwood campus, and it is a joy to be with you guys uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to be in the, in, the God, or in the book of Acts this morning, so if you have your Bibles, open to Acts chapter 14. As you guys turn there, uh, I'll say to you guys, I, I think for every single one of us over the course of this fall, I think every single one of us has been caught up by the exploits of the one that we can now call Johnny Heisman, right? Um, uh, even for you non-sports fans out there, and some, I know you guys, some of y'all don't really follow sports, but it has been unprecedented to follow this guy's story this year. Uh, from backup quarterback to the first ever freshman award, Heisman Award winner ever before. Unprecedented, uh, that storyline. Also, I think unprecedented has been the hype and the hysteria that has surrounded him as we led up to the Heisman ceremony just a week ago. Uh, I was taking note and kind of cataloging as the fall went along all the different kinds of crazy statements that were made and said about this guy. Uh, some of said, there was a high school student, you may have caught the story, who shaved Johnny's face and his name in the back of his head and had it painted in. Got sent home from high school, but I thought, that's kind of good bull. That's great, right? Gig him, all right? Uh, and then others have said crazy things like this. Uh, this is Johnny football's world and the rest of us are just living in it. Uh, some of y'all may have heard uh, a person ask, uh, what do Johnny football and the moon have in common? They both control the tide. I know. I'm just trying to see if you're awake this morning. That's all right. Okay. Uh, Or uh, some of you guys might have heard uh, Johnny football doesn't always fumble the ball, but when he does, he picks it up and he throws a touchdown. Right. Uh, Or my favorite of all the ones that I've heard is this one. Johnny football really is the Chuck Norris of division one football. Amen. All right. Uh, In fact, there's a rumor going around that Chuck Norris, as he heads to bed Christmas Eve, will be wearing Johnny Heisman pajamas. All right. The rumor, uh, these things are out there, who knows? But his hysteria and the hype really, I think, has been unprecedented around this guy. Uh, and, and I think for many of us, as his face is plastered over New York's Times Square with billboards, as he showed up on ESPN Radio, on ESPN Live, all over the place, from interviews to sportscasts, uh, I think many of us have tuned in because we're interested in the story. And I think for many of us, we're also interested by not just who this guy is on the field, but who is he off the field? How is he going to handle this kind of notoriety and success? Because success can pose a unique challenge and a unique danger. We've all seen who this guy is on the field, but the question we have is who is he off the field? Because who he is off the field will determine who he is on the field next year, right? Will success change him? Will that kind of acclaim and notoriety maintain in him a humble attitude and a real drive to prepare and to train? Or will it change him? Every single one of us has really, I think, been caught up by the story. I've been wondering, who is this guy and how will he handle this success moving forward? I think success poses a challenge not just for Johnny football, but I think for you and I as well. Obviously, none of us maybe will ever experience the kind of acclaim and fame that Johnny Manziel has over the course of this one year. And we may never experience that in the entirety of our lives, all right? But whether our successes will be small or large, Whether they've been in the past or they will be in the future, success poses a unique threat to each one of us. Success can change us. When men and women are applauding and approving and praising you and I, it can have a way that it has a chance to change us and to carry us off often away from worship of God and often away from what God has called us to. Our successes may look quite a bit different, but success can still pose a threat to you and I. And the question is, how will we handle success when it finds us? whether that be large or small, whether that be in a workplace setting or in your family setting or even in a spiritual setting, wherever the setting may be that you live and that you move around, if success and the applause of men and women finds you, how will you respond? 
One of my favorite stories in the book of Acts this semester comes in Acts chapter 14 that we're going to be in this morning. If you have your Bibles, open to Acts chapter 14. Uh, And in this story, we're really going to see Paul and Barnabas, and they're going to uh, find the kind of approval and the kind of applause of men and women that even Johnny Football has not encountered, all right? That ultimately uh, Barnabas and Paul are going to be put on a pedestal that will eclipse and overshadow anything Johnny Football or any other Heisman hopeful has ever encountered. And their response to that kind of success, the response to that kind of applause really is noteworthy. It's going to be incredibly telling and incredibly helpful for you and I to lay out a path for you and I as to how you and I are to handle success and how we're to even prepare for it, maybe even before it finds us. Paul and Barnabas are going to respond in a very different and a very telling way that for us is going to be, I think, really significant and really helpful for us in our lives. Acts 14, verse 8. It's going to really begin, though, with a little bit of razzle-dazzle, all right? A little bit of razzle-dazzle. As this passage opens in verses 8 to 10, you're going to see really a situation that is impossible that will become possible, though. Look with me, if you will, verse 8. Luke writes, At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked, Luke could not paint a more bleak, a more impossible, a more desperate situation than this. A guy who's been lame from his mother's womb, a guy who has never walked and he has no strength. This is impossible beyond impossible. This is way over and above anything like a fourth and 40 for Johnny football. This is way more difficult. And yet God will step in and God will move. Notice verses 9 and 10. Notice what God does through Paul and Barnabas, these apostles. Verse 9. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and he began to walk. All of a sudden, God steps into this impossible situation and he makes the impossible possible. I love the book of Acts because you see supernatural event after supernatural event as you walk through the flow of the book of Acts. In fact, you see even in Acts chapter three, there's a beggar who's at a gate uh, to the temple that is called beautiful. And he's there. He's just begging alms. And yet Peter and John will see him, challenge him to look up at them. And he will, they will do for him what no one else could. They will bring healing and allow the kingdom of God to break in with this little individual. Here we're going to see a similar story in Acts 14 in which God is going to break in in a miraculous way and do something beyond what anyone would have anticipated. The impossible will become possible. And because of that, the crowds will go crazy. (laughs) When they see the razzle and they see the dazzle, all of a sudden they're going to have all kinds of acclaim and fame. The crowds are going to respond with all kinds of wild applause. Notice exactly what the crowds do in verses verse 11 and on. Luke tells us that when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and they've come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. I think at this point, I don't think Paul and Barnabas have any idea exactly what these people are saying. Uh, The text tells us that they're speaking in the Lyconian language. So I don't think Paul and Barnabas know the exact details of what's being said. They know that the crowds are going crazy. They know the crowds are responding with wild applause and interest and intrigue. But I don't think they have really any idea of exactly what's happening until verse 13. Luke tells us that the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and they wanted to offer sacrifice with crowds. Think about that for a moment. Paul and Barnabas have just showed up in the city. They've done one thing. And now the crowds are responding with wild applause and they're proclaiming that these men are gods. These guys just showed up into the city and it doesn't take very long at all for the people to all of a sudden begin to proclaim them and put them on the pedestal as gods. Wow. 
I think it's not just this audience. I think for many cultures, I think people by and large are desperate to worship and they will worship something. These crowds are desperate to worship and they respond impulsively to worship. The problem though, when you respond impulsively to worship, I think you also end up worshiping idiotically. If your choice of worship is one that is by, by impulse, I think you also make a choice that is incredibly foolish. That's what these crowds will do is they proclaim that Paul and Barnabas are gods. It's foolish. And yet I think as you look at culture, not just in the book of, of Acts, but I think culture at large, I think people by and large are desperate to worship. One of my favorite uh, movie franchises, and excuse me, this is kind of the life stage that I'm in, is Madagascar, okay? Um, and one of my favorite characters from the movie Madagascar is this character, King Julian, all right? I don't know if you guys have seen the movies, but I love this guy. And I've always wondered to myself, who in the world ever thought it was a good idea to put that guy in charge, right? <laughs> I mean, he's as foolish as they come. He's as selfish as they come. He's completely self-serving. And I don't know who in their right mind ever would have put that guy in charge. And I don't know how he stays in charge either, right? Uh, Animal kingdom by and large will go crazy over this guy and allow him to dictate to them every whim of his discretion and his desires. And I've often thought to myself, how does that guy get put in charge? What I love about the movie too, is you look at this guy as he responds to worship and acclaim and fame is he's the guy that goes, no, 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 right? He just revels in it, right? He just basks in the glow and the praise of others and he just lives for it. I think it's not just King Julian. In fact, if you uh, know the book of Acts very well at all, it's just two chapters earlier that we're in Acts 12 and we see a story in which King Herod will be praised as having the voice of a God, not of a man. And what does King Herod do? He receives worship to himself. He says, that's right. <laughs> Thank you very much. Right? And do you know what God does? What does God do in that moment? God comes and takes his life at that very moment because God will not have himself, will not have worship that is due him received by anyone else because he and he alone is God. In fact, I love that story in Acts 12 too, because it's not just that God comes and takes King Herod's life, but he kills him and he's eaten by worms, right? I don't know if you've ever thought to yourself, how is it I want to go out? That's not it for me, all right? I don't want to go out by worms. And yet I think King Herod dies in a way that is absolutely clear to everyone. He's no God. Gods do not die in that kind of way. And I think he dies in a way to make the message that, hey, no one takes worship for themselves that is meant to be gods. When people choose to worship impulsively, they often choose to worship idiotically. And there are those that will receive that worship to themselves when it is misplaced. And you need to be very careful. King Herod learned that lesson. And what we're going to see in Acts 14 with Paul and Barnabas really is that they're going to respond really in a very, very different way. They're not going to be those that will bask and will revel in the worship that they will receive, but they will respond very, very differently. Notice the text. Notice where Luke will take us. Notice the apostles' response. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and they rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? Notice that for Paul and Barnabas, the moment they hear it, the moment they realize what's going on, They are absolutely disturbed. They're floored and they move to immediately handle and resolve the situation. They're immediately disturbed and floored and they move to immediately stop it. They tear their robes. They rush out. They're crying out, men, why are you doing this? This is not appropriate. Stop it. Knock it off. And what I love about Paul and Barnabas is not just that they're a great contrast to King Herod or so many of the celebrities in our culture who bask in the limelight that comes their way. What I love, though, about their response that we're going to see from the following verses is that Paul and Barnabas, 
will respond to this kind of hype, this kind of hysteria, this kind of approval and applause in a way that I think will show you and I three critical fallacies that come with hype and the approval of man. I think for every single one of us, we want to be applauded. We want to be told, well done. We want to be loved and approved of. That is absolutely natural and that is human instinct. And yet in that natural human instinct, there's an element of our response to it and that you and I can get, in a sense, the wool can be pulled over our eyes to fail to realize three critical things that I think Paul and Barnabas understood. And I think they're so helpful for you and I. And the first is this. I think Paul and Barnabas understood that when it came to the applause or the approval of man, hype is inflated. When it comes to people's applause and people's acclaim and fame that is bestowed on individuals, it is always inflated because it is never accurate. It always goes above and beyond what is realistic. Uh, One of my favorite NFL head coaches, a guy named Bill Parcells, would say this to his athletes, speaking of hype and the approval of man. Speaking to his athletes, he would say, when everybody's feeding you the cheese, it's hard not to eat it, right? When everybody's just applauding and saying, you are amazing, you are the best thing since sliced bread, it's hard not to take that in yourself and say, I am a good guy, right? He says, but don't eat the cheese. You're never as good as people say you are. Always strive to improve yourself. In fact, ignore other opinions, press or TV, agents or advisors, family or wives, friends or relatives, fans or hangers on. They don't know what's happening here. Parcells speaking to athletes would say that to an industry and to a job and a performance that is evaluated on a weekly basis in the public, he'd say, hey, don't pay attention to what people are saying. That when they're applauding you and they think you're the best thing ever, it's inflated and it's not accurate. And when their applause is deafeningly silent, it's not accurate either. Then the outside, people don't know what's truly going on, so don't pay attention. Parcells would realize that for NFL athletes, but Paul and Barnabas would realize that for themselves. Notice their exact response to, to the comment. Notice exactly what they say, verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you. Notice what they say, in a sense, in their response back to uh, the crowds. We are no different than you guys. We are of the same nature as you. You are responding inappropriately, right? The applause and the approval you're bestowing on us is inflated. It is inaccurate. It is not fitting. They basically, they say two things. One, we are men. You've declared us to be gods. We are actually men. This is inappropriate and unnecessary. Second of all, we are of the same nature as you. You're applauding us and declaring us to be something that we're not. But even more, we are no different than you. There's no reason that you should be applauding us because we are of the same nature. We are no different than you. I think the, the uh, apostles realized that hype, the approval of man, was inflated. One of my favorite stories comes from a, a famous preacher who felt pretty good about a Sunday sermon. He was driving home with his wife. I guess many people had come up and applauded him afterwards. And he was driving home with his wife. And he said to his wife, honey, how many truly, just truly great preachers do you think there are in the world? Knowing the, knowing the heart of her husband, his, the wife says with a smirk, I think there's probably one less than you think there is. <laughs> right? <laughs> that, that it's very difficult when people are applauding. It's very difficult when people are feeding you the cheese not to take it and to not to get inflated and to begin to ride a wave that comes with the approval and the applause of men and women. Paul and Barnabas will see the wave coming and they won't jump on. They won't eat the cheese. Why? What is it about Paul and Barnabas that makes them so different in the way that they respond to this in the way King Herod does, King Julian, or anyone else in our lives, or even us? 
I think ultimately, I think Barnabas and Paul had a kind of humility that is so distinct from what you and I often have in our lives right now. I think they had a kind of humility that was not just an accurate view of self. It was a really a preoccupation with the very glory of God. I don't think they allowed people to make much of them because they had made so much of God that it did not matter how highly crowds would raise them. They knew they could never raise them to where they had put God in their own hearts. Let me say that again. I, I think they did not allow others to make much of them because they had made so much of God in their own hearts that it did not matter how highly others would exalt them in their lives. It would never come close to where they had put God in their own lives. In fact, I think the great challenge really comes from Paul and Barnabas is this challenge of humility that, that to be unchanged when the success comes, we have to be those that are humble. I think this concept of humility, I think, frankly, is an elusive one. It's definitely not one that our culture loves, longs for, or trains in any of us. In fact, Andrew Murray will write a book called Humility, an incredibly fascinating read. And he'll say this about how you and I grow in humility. How do we actually increase in that character quality? He says this, It is not sin that humbles most, but grace. And that is the soul led through its sinfulness to be occupied with God in his wonderful glory as creator and redeemer that will truly take the lowest place before him. Notice what Murray's saying. How do you and I grow in humility? We don't just stare at ourselves and and come up with all of the weaknesses, limitations, and issues we have and try to have a more accurate view of self. That's not what we do. It's not how you achieve true, lasting, significant kind of transformational humility. Ultimately, what Murray is calling you and I to is a realization that if you and I will be preoccupied with his majesty, his glory, and his grandeur, it will exalt him in our hearts in such a way that we get a more accurate view of ourselves And we also begin to find ourselves in a place of true humility. True humility comes not by self-pity, but by a real occupation with the majesty of God. I think true humility comes not from self-pity, but it comes with an occupation with God's majesty. That when we see him for all that he is, we get an all more clear sense of exactly who we are and therefore how much further we have to go. And when we see God as as grand and as glorious as he is, it doesn't matter how highly the crowds will applaud us and exalt us because it's just inflated and it comes so short with who God is and how highly we've exalted God in our lives. The first challenge that Paul and Barnabas give us is to grow in humility because ultimately what we're going to realize is that hype is not just inflated, it's also incidental. Hype is not just inflated, it's also incidental. It's not just inflated in that it's inaccurate, It's also incidental in that it's a pure accident. That when the applause and the glory and the approval of men and women find you, it's not ultimately intended for you. That's really hard for us to separate out. Let me give you guys an example. Imagine for a minute with me, if you will, imagine a guy who walks into a convenience store, pays $5, walks out with a lottery ticket, all right? Imagine him tuning into newscasts and following in with the balls that are chosen, and he finds out that night that he's the winner of $30 million. (laughs) I'd like to be his friend, right? But imagine now if a press conference is held and imagine if as he's speaking to the community at large within which he's won this ticket, imagine him having an air of condescension as if he thinks he's better than everybody else. How ridiculous would that be? He didn't do anything to merit that financial windfall. He didn't do anything to actually merit all of this fame, all this notoriety. It is purely accidental. It is purely by chance. And that's easy for us to see with a lottery winner, right? But when all of a sudden approval and the applause of men and women finds us because of something we've done, because of the way we look, because of our personality, because of our gifts, 
because of what we've accomplished, it becomes a lot harder to begin to separate out for, for you and I that ultimately what's coming at us is not intended for us. And that we're ultimately not the ultimate object of that praise that's intended for somebody else. I think what Paul and Barnabas will realize in the midst of this moment once they will be exalted as gods is they'll see this as an opportunity to redirect men and women's attention to who God is. Because in a culture, in a world that men and women are so desperate to worship, what they're really looking for is God. And sometimes as they applaud and they approve and they, uh, they go crazy that ultimately it's just a window because what they're truly looking for is one who's far more significant than any celebrity, any lottery winner, or any athlete. That's really exactly what Paul and Barnabas will do. Notice that where the passage will go next. Notice what Paul says next. Back to verse 15. And saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are, are also men of the same nature as you, and we preach the gospel to you. <laughs> For Paul and Barnabas, they wanted to make sure that if anyone caught anything they said, it was this message, the gospel. That Jesus has died and been resurrected to forgive sins so that those who have been separated from God could have eternal life and be reconciled to God. If there was any message that they wanted men and women to catch and not miss, it was that one. And the reason why they wanted them to catch that message is because it pointed with an arrow to an individual that was who people were truly and genuinely looking for. Notice where the text goes next. We preach the gospel to you so that you would turn from these vain things to a living God. As Paul and Barnabas are praised and as they are exalted, they see this as an opportunity to redirect men and women's attention to God. This is who men and women are truly looking for. And now he begins to unfold exactly who this God is that they're looking for. Notice how he begins to describe him. He's not just a living God, but also he's one who's made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He's alive and he's creative. He's living and he's creating, but he's also loving. Verse 16. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness and that he did good. And he gave you rains from heaven. And fruitful season, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Notice, really, as Paul and Barnabas redirect men and women's attention, he wants them to see, hey, here is who God is. He's one who's alive. He's one who's creative. He's one who's loving. And ultimately, he's one who's satisfying. That what men and women are truly looking for as they applaud and as they praise and as they heap his hype and hysteria on things in our culture, is they're looking for only what God can provide. Only God is alive. Only God is the one who's truly loving and truly satisfying. And as the approval and the applause of the crowds finds Paul and Barnabas, they say, hey, here's who you're looking for right over here, right over here. I love where the story goes next in verse 18, because despite all of their efforts, despite all of their efforts to redirect praise, notice what happens in verse 18. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrain the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Despite their greatest efforts, the culture and the crowds continue to worship and praise them and not the one whom they're trying to redirect their attention to see. It's not just their culture, it's our culture as well. I think our culture is one that is absolutely in, uh, infatuated and obsessed with celebrities, right? It's the athletes, it's the actors, it's the musicians, it's the politicians, it's those that are all about celebrity status. And so we have magazines, we have paparazzi, we have reality shows, we have all of these vehicles to create hype and to create celebrity status. There's even shows about wives of celebrities for Pete's sakes, right? It's not just the celebrities. Maybe I can even get to know their wife and maybe the celebrity will pop in there at some point, right? It's crazy. Our culture is absolutely obsessed with celebrities. We want to know everything about them, not just on the field, but off the field. Not just on the set, but off the set, right? 
We want to know the pictures of their babies. We, we, just want to, we, we get obsessed because we think, I think in many ways, that there's something that they can offer us that we really have begun to get misplaced about. I want to ask you guys two questions, really. One is this, what is it and who is it you applaud? As you look in your life, where are the places or where are the people that you are applauding that you really find your significance and your satisfaction and your hope in? For some of us, it's our spouses or someone of the opposite sex. For some of us parents, frankly, it's our kids. Our hearts and our lives are wrapped and, and just completely wrapped around them in a way that they are our hearts, they are our worship, right? And it's a difficult balance to walk at times. For you, where is it and whom is it that you applaud? And is that applause really taking the place as a substitute for God in your life in a way? I don't know. Second thing I want to say is not just who are you applauding, but if applause finds you, what do you do? I think Paul and Barnabas will remain unchanged because they were humble. And I think they will handle it appropriately because they will see in this an opportunity to redirect praise where it is due. I want to challenge you guys in the places that you are praised this winter break, in the places in your life, whether the successes are small or they're large, see those as an opportunity to redirect men and women's attention to God. Now, here's who God is. Here's why this is able to be possible in my life. Here's why this is even true or reality about my family, about my marriage, about my work life, my career. Because of what God has done in and through my life. Apart from him, I'd be nothing. Apart from him, this would not at all be true or praiseworthy. What are those places in your life where people come and they applaud? And how can you turn and redirect that to the one whom they're truly looking for? I think for Paul and Barnabas, they realized that ultimately hype was not just inflated. It was incidental. And lastly, it's only for an instant. It's only for an instant. Hype will come overnight and it will take off overnight. It's interesting. I want to give you guys a little bit more of the background of the story. I want to take you guys all the way back up into verse five of chapter 14. I want you guys to notice what happened to Paul and Barnabas right before we got into the story that in which they all of a sudden became gods, right? Verse five. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, (laughs) they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe and the surrounding regions. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Why are they in Lystra right now in 14.8? Because they are running for the lives, right? This isn't a celebrity status kind of thing for them at all, right? They are running for their lives. And then all of a sudden, they end up in Lystra and they're praised as gods. And now that's a nice change, right? This sounds a little bit better. But notice what happens in verse 19. Notice how quickly things turn for them even in Lystra. Verse 18, despite all that they've said, people are still worshiping and praising them. But notice what happens in verse 19. Notice how fast things change. 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having won over the same crowds in Lystra, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. (laughs) That was quick, right? That was a short-lived 15 minutes of fame. Came overnight and it left overnight. Hype and the approval and the applause of crowds is only for an instant. Paul and Barnabas got that experientially, all right? And yet I think you and I see that even in our culture all the time, right? I I love watching all of the celebrities in which the limelight has left them behind and they're still just chasing after it with one pathetic comeback after another, right? Because they just got to be back in the limelight. If I see one more athlete who has NFL world champion records who has to go into a dancing reality show (laughs) to get a little bit of limelight, I'm going to go crazy, right? What a, what a horrible stooping down, all right? Some of you guys love those dancing shows, and that's great, all right? But it wasn't the hard gridiron of the NFL, right? 
But these guys, they've had the limelight. It's left them, and now they're chasing after it to recapture it, even if it's in a bit of a small little parcel from what they once had. They're desperate for it. That kind of hype, that kind of applause has changed them as individuals, and therefore they are chasing after it even when it's gone. And yet Paul and Barnabas will do something incredibly different. Paul and Barnabas will not chase after it. They weren't chasing it when they found it, and they will not chase after it when it leaves them. They are unchanged men. They're also unchanged in the task and the mission that's in front of them. Uh, if you guys, the deacons want to go begin to prepare communion, we'll, we'll be there here in a few minutes. But I want you guys to see from the passage at where we go next in verse 20. Notice where the story goes. Verse 20. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and he entered the city. And the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. <laughs> so Paul gets up. He's been stoned. He's been left for dead outside of the city. The disciples surround him. They're like, hey, you are right. <laughs> and he gets up and he goes right back into the city. All right. And then a day later with Barnabas, he takes off for Derby. And then notice what they do is they take off. Verse 21. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. I think for Paul and Barnabas, they were set dead set on one mission. And that was the establishment of the kingdom of God. When applause and the approval of crowds found them, it did not change them as individuals because they were humble. They had a sense of true humility that was so preoccupied with the grandeur and the glory of God. But also, they stayed on task, they stayed on mission. The approval and the applause of the crowds did not distract them from what God had called them to, and that was to preach the gospel. That was to take the gospel where it was not yet, so that those that had not heard it could hear it and respond to it. And sometimes when they responded, applause would come and sometimes rocks would come. But either way, it didn't matter for Paul and Barnabas. They were the same people on the same mission, no matter whether it was applause or stones, no matter whether it was cheers or sneers. It didn't matter. They continued on. I think it's incredible, not just from this passage, but even this uh, Christmas time of year that we have the opportunity to celebrate communion. I think even for you guys, as you guys want to come forward and begin to pass out the elements, uh, I think communion is a great picture even of what we've been talking about this morning. Thinking about the fact that Jesus Christ in taking on human flesh came in utter humility, leaving the glories of heaven and coming and taking on human flesh so that he could identify and walk amongst us. But even that same humility was seen not just in his incarnation, but even in his crucifixion, that he would die in our place, the most gruesome and the cruelest of deaths, so that we could have life. And as Colin and the crew come back up, and as they get set, I want you guys to have an opportunity before we take of the elements just to come before the Lord and just to ask him, hey, Lord, in the midst of the kind of humility that we see in and through Jesus Christ, what does that look like for me? How is it that I need to be growing and true, more significant kind of humility with a greater preoccupation of who you are and what you've done. And how can, we, how can that begin to change me as success finds me or as I wait on it or as I long for it, how that can begin to change me and prepare a heart in me that's different. Colin's going to lead us and then we'll come back up and take the elements here in a minute. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the incredible gift of your son, Jesus Christ. That in great humility, he would come taking on human flesh to identify and to walk amongst us. That he would even come in a way of utter humility, coming espied from magi and shepherds, um, but overall with not a lot of applause, not a lot of acclaim. And Father, yet you would draw applause, you would draw attention to him eventually, though he would be crucified, not to the applause of men, but to the rejection. And Father, for one who stayed on task, who stayed on mission, who was unchanged, whether the crowds were applauding him or whether they were sneering at him, Father, I pray that you would allow us to have the same kind of loyalty and sense of humility before you. That you are much. And no matter what crowds may say of us, no matter how highly they may exalt us, it will never match what you've said about us. That you love us. And that you gave yourself for us. And that none will go to the extent that you have gone for us. To take on human flesh and to die a, a completely innocent death. Father, I pray this morning, Lord, I pray even as we go out, Lord, I pray that you would give us a sense of an opportunity in our culture and our worlds, Lord, as people applaud and appraise us, Lord, I pray that we would be those who could redirect them to you. I pray that you give us eyes to see, that you give us ears to hear this Christmas season, how we can speak of you and how we can speak of the hope we have in you. Father, I pray that you would provide people in our lives hearts that would be soft, that would be open to hearing of you. And they'd be drawn into relation maybe for the first time ever. Father, I pray you'd allow us to be a part of that. You'd allow us to have our eyes on the mission that you've called us to, to establish your kingdom, to preach the gospel in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and wherever we step, Lord. And we, we, may we be bold representatives for you, whether we're applauded or whether we're sneered at, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. We're going to end with one more song here as we respond in worship, and then we'll let you guys be dismissed.